Hello, and thanks for listening to this podcast on the Ethiopian eunuchs. I'm sure some of you are thinking, Douglas must be tired, he's made a mistake. There's only one Ethiopian eunuch, that is the treasurer of Ethiopia, who visited Jerusalem and ended up becoming a Christian on the way back. We remember the famous Ethiopian eunuch of Acts chapter 8. But when we read the entire Bible, we see that he's actually not unique. Eunuchs are found in the Old Testament in several places, but to appreciate the position they're in, and also to set myself up for the conclusion of this podcast, I need to read some background information. Of course, every Israelite at some point in his life would come to the temple. Sacrifices would be made, sometimes to atone for sin, sometimes just to express sheer gratitude. Please notice the wording of this prohibition, which I find in Deuteronomy 23.1. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. The assembly of the Lord must be holy, and in some way, someone whose missing part of his body is less than complete. I cannot justify or go into detail at this time to explain this. The important thing is to realize that eunuchs were outsiders. In Leviticus 21, we read this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron. None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. Now, we seem to be talking about priests. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offering. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. Now, I know this sounds very harsh in our modern period. Uh, yeah, the, the temple did not have wheelchair access. Uh, our concern uh, for the poor, for those who have various physical or mental disabilities, is not only a modern thing, because God makes provision for the needy in the Old Testament. But in terms of the priesthood, the priest who uh, represents spiritually and physically the people whose sins he will atone for by offering a sacrifice, that priest must must match the standard. Again, not politically correct now, but our purpose is not to try to force the scriptures to be politically correct. In fact, the very next verse shows us the heart of God. It says that although he cannot come near to offer the bread, verse 22, he may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar, and so forth. So God wasn't shutting him out of support. He was still able to take part in the benefit, the the benefit of the sacrifices. He was able to eat. He was able to live. This uh, uh, prohibition on those with physical uh, defects, particularly we're talking about eunuchs, is also um, applied to animals. We see that in Leviticus 22. Uh, animals with any kind of blemish are unfit for offering as a sacrifice. There's one other piece of background information that will help us to appreciate this lesson. 
And that's the, the basic meaning of the word, which is translated eunuch in the Old Testament, saris. It's also the word for official. Now, I'm not sure that every official was a eunuch any more than that every eunuch was an official, even less likely. But the same word is used for both. And I think that makes sense if you realize that in palaces, powerful kings had harems. If a eunuch was in the presence of the the wives, he would be completely trustworthy. He was not likely to sire male offspring who could challenge the dynasty of the king once the king passed on. So it's a way, in a sense, of protecting the kingdom. And we can see that this point is well taken. How many times in the Old Testament does a son, whether legitimate or not, uh, end up challenging the uh, position that one of his brothers has taken, or he's challenging his own father? So it was a precaution. And I'm not sure that it would have the stigma that that, that it attaches to the word today, being a eunuch. It was a normal thing. In fact, even on the other side of the world, in, in China, uh, the, the advisors were often eunuchs, those who had access to the emperor. Uh, in fact, today in India, many people become eunuchs. Uh, there, there are many um, fascinating uh, side roads we could go down, but I'm going to try to just discipline myself here. The point is that eunuch and official, same word, uh, that, that will be important in a moment. Let's look at a couple of these guys. Remember when Jehu came to Jezreel and Jezebel heard of it? Jehu was the zealous prophet who uh, was anointed uh, by um, Elijah. Anyway, Jezebel's, her time's up. She knows she's going to be assassinated. And she's upstairs. We'll pick it up in 2 Kings 9, 30. As Jezebel painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window, and as Jehu entered the gate, she said, is it peace, you Zimri murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who's on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. The ignominious end of Jezebel. You know, they go in to have a meal. When they come back, there's nothing left of her except her skull and her hands. You know, some of the parts that the dogs were not able to eat. So the at this point, it was clear that the uh, palace was no longer on the side of Jezebel. And it's the eunuchs who actually throw her out. They defenestrate her, throw her out a window. There's a prediction made to Hezekiah. After Hezekiah appeals to the Lord for mercy and for a time extension, and, and he's feeling very good. Envoys from Babylon come. This is in Isaiah 39. And after he shows the Babylonians all of his palace, all of the goods, the goodies, uh, Isaiah tells him this, some of your own sons, Hezekiah, who come from you, whom you will father shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So these royal children would be serving in the Babylonian uh, palace. Again, we think, oh, how horrible to be made a eunuch. I think for, for some, it was maybe the opposite. It was the guarantee of a, of a good life and position of responsibility and, and trust. 
and I'm not uh, advocating, uh, you know, that we um, put this through the test. Or I'm just trying to help us to understand the culture of the Old Testament. Now we come to our man, the first Ethiopian eunuch we read about, and I'm uh, going to be sharing now from, of course, the the book of Jeremiah, uh, chapter 38. Now, Shephatai, the son of Matan, Gedaliah, the son of Pashur, Jukal, the son of Shelemiah, and Pashur, the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people. Thus says the Lord, he who stays in his city shall die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence, but he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Okay, let me just give a historical comment. Uh, Jeremiah, for 40 years, was prophesying that unless the southern kingdom of Judah repented, the Babylonians would take them away and ultimately destroy the temple, which is exactly what happened. So it's an appeal to, uh, to surrender. It's an appeal to be humble before God, and you just might live. Let me continue. Thus says the Lord, the city shall surely be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and taken. That's the city of Jerusalem. Then the official said to the king, let this man be put to death. Jeremiah, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. King Zedekiah said, behold, he's in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. What a weak king. So they took Jeremiah and they cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. Now, at least they... They didn't just chuck him in there. They lowered him down. Uh, And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. So normally this would be what would collect rainwater or could be a well. But they put him in this cistern uh, so that he can die there. It's a a capital sentence, in other words. We pick it up in verse 7, Jeremiah 38, 7. When Eved-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house heard they'd put Jeremiah into the cistern. The king was sitting in the Benjamin gate. Evid melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord the king, these men have done evil at all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern. He'll die there of hunger, for there's no bread left in the city. Then the king commanded Evid melech the Ethiopian, Take 30 men with you from here and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to the house of the king to a wardrobe in the storehouse and took from there old rags and worn-out clothes, which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. Then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Jeremiah did so. Then they drew Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the cistern, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. Well, it says, explicitly, this man, Ebed-Melech, which is Hebrew for servant of the king, again, showing his position at court, he's an Ethiopian, and because of his important position, not surprisingly, as Cyrus, he is a eunuch. And he's he's indignant and truly concerned that uh, Jeremiah is, is speaking the truth, and he's been unfairly thrown to the cistern, and he persuades this kind of anemic king, to to do something about it. And he does uh, secure his support. And it takes 30 men. I, I mean, the cistern fights back. When someone's sunk in mud, it takes a lot of force to, to remove them. Uh, 
Now, we see some other uh, eunuchs, uh, for example, in the book of Esther, in many places. You know, even Daniel, you know, some scholars would say that Daniel and his three friends, who were taken to Babylon to serve, uh, were eunuchs, were made eunuchs. So you can't prove that, but it would not at all be surprising. So much for the Old Testament eunuchs. We've read first that they were forbidden to offer sacrifices as priests. Uh, they had to stay outside the assembly of the Lord. So in a sense, they're outsiders. But it's not all shame. Um, there's an honor uh, being a Cyrus, an official uh, in, at court, uh, serving a king uh, as, a, as a eunuch, as an official, was a, quite a, a career path. And, and we find these eunuchs a number of times in the Old Testament, seldom in the New Testament. Now, you may be recalling the passage where Jesus said that some people have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom. That's in Matthew 19, 12. That's probably metaphorical because the context is uh, marriage. And uh, some people decide to forego marriage. I think that's the dominant interpretation and, and almost certainly the correct one. So, in fact, Jesus says, you know, if you can do that, that's uh, you should, if you can accept it, if you can uh, live a life as a single, as opposed to um, enjoying the companionship of, of marriage. But the other eunuch passage, and this is the one I think we're most familiar with, of course, is in Acts 8. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, verse 26, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. Okay, so Philip is uh, going away from Jerusalem to Gaza. When it says it's a desert place, uh, I mean, it is dry, uh, but it's more that it's deserted. There aren't many people around there. So there, it's really just, uh, just this man, and then he comes upon this chariot. There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him and of course, Philip explains the scriptures, preaches the good news, and as they're continuing along the way, uh, the Ethiopian shouts out to the chariot driver to, to stop, stop the chariot, and he wants to be baptized. You know, what prevents me from being baptized? He and, and uh, Philip, both of them, go into the water, he's baptized, he comes out, he's filled with joy, and there you go. It's a great passage. Uh, once again, we have a palace official. Uh, the, the there was a series of queens of Ethiopia named Kandake. It's rendered Candace here. That can confuse people a bit because it's not her personal name. It's more her position. It's kind of like Caesar. So you had uh, Julius Caesar and then his nephew Octavian who becomes Augustus and then all the other Caesars or Kaiser, Kaiser in the original. And so Kaiser... It could become a name today. Some men are named Caesar. Sometimes people name their dog Caesar. But it, it's more of a position. It's not so much a personal name. Same with the Kandakes, the Candaces of Ethiopia. And this man is entrusted with the treasure. So I don't know if you would call him 
Minister of the Treasury, Chancellor of the Exchequer, but whatever he is, he's respected. And there's a large Jewish community in Ethiopia, always has been, and that's probably how he knows that you're supposed to go to Jerusalem uh, three times a year to observe Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And so this man has gone, and he's returning. Uh, Of course, it's possible he just made an independent business trip. I guess I can't prove it one way or the other. But uh, if he's like me, he would try to double things up. And look at what a heart he has. He's reading. He's humble. uh, He's asked questions. He accepts uh, uh, the input. And, of course, he becomes a Christian. There is one other uh, reference uh, to him but it's, it's not in a valid work. It's a Gnostic. It's a heretical um, uh, document from the very end of the second century where this man is called Simeon Bacchus. You know, they, give, they even give a name to the Ethiopian. That's a common characteristic of uh, these kind of uh, spurious documents that are made up later. They like to fill in details and give names. Well, first, I'd like us to look at the parallels between the two Ethiopian eunuchs of the Bible. And then I want us to learn something about God. The parallels are simple. Both are Ethiopians. Both are eunuchs. Both have attached themselves to God's people, one serving the king of Judah, the other living as a God-fearer. You know, that's the technical term for a Gentile who's attracted to Judaism and who observes Torah, at least partially. Uh, The God-fearers embraced the moral aspect of the Old Covenant, but they didn't undertake the demanding requirements of keeping kosher or observing Sabbath or undergoing circumcision, uh, which would have been impossible in the case of Eved Melech and of the unnamed Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. Both are Ethiopians, both are eunuchs, both had attached themselves to God's people, both came into contact with a man of God, a man with a message. Now, in one case, it's Jeremiah, in another, Philip. Both are responsive to the message of God. Evan Melech realized Jeremiah was both innocent and one who spoke the truth from God. His more famous New Testament counterpart welcomed the assistance and guidance of Philip. And one more similarity, both acted with urgency. Evan Melech took the 30 men plus the necessary accessories for bringing people out of muddy cisterns, and he saved Jeremiah's life. Candace's treasurer gave the order for his chariot to stop so that he could be baptized right then, right there. Both acted with urgency. So what's going on? What's really the point here? What are we learning about God? And for it to become clearest, it's important to go back to the Old Testament and particularly to some of the beautiful prophecies of the prophet Isaiah. And this is in Isaiah chapter 56. This is a chapter where there's judgment on unfaithful Israel, especially its leaders, And yet there's an open door for foreigners and eunuchs and others who were excluded from covenant blessings. Let me read a bit. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, who keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. Uh, That's referring to his inability to have offspring. For thus says the Lord, 
to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Oh, I I need to keep reading, but I I just noticed something. In uh, 56.5, it's speaking uh, uh, of these persons who would have been excluded, outsiders who are now going to be welcome. But it says he'll give them a monument and a name. A monument and a name. Yad Vashem, a monument and a name. That's the huge campus. It's an outdoor, well, it's multi-building memorial to the the Jewish Holocaust um, in Jerusalem. Extremely moving. And it's named after uh, this verse, monument and a name. But let me keep going. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath doesn't profane it, holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcast of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Now, this is just beautiful. Uh, The eunuchs had been excluded. They're going to be welcomed in at some point. God will gather the outcasts of Israel. Ultimately, they'll come back uh, in the time of of Cyrus the Persian. But there are others who'll be gathered in, not just Jews, but Gentiles. It's like Jesus in John 10 saying, uh, there's another flock. You know, it's not just this flock, the sheep of Israel. Um, there, there's a, there are other people. Uh, Jesus refers to the Gentiles. And it's all set in stark contrast in the following verses where Israel's leaders are shown to be just completely self-serving, totally miss the point of being uh, a man of God. So they're the excluded ones. The insiders are thrown out and the outsiders are brought in. Isn't that just like our God? So what do we learn about God here? Well, we certainly see that the Old Testament Ethiopian eunuch anticipates, it's it's kind of a bit of foreshadowing in a way, the New Testament Ethiopian eunuch. You know, both are accepted by God, both are good, but uh, God is doing something here. Now, God is doing something. And I think we need to be fair. When we read passages that strike us as harsh, you know, perhaps the, the ones I read at the beginning of this lesson about those with uh, disabilities being excluded, rather than jumping to a conclusion, casting aspersions on God's love, just mm, hold on a moment. Take a breath and consider that maybe later on in the Bible, when you're reading or, or in your life, maybe soon, maybe years later, we'll find out there, there were reasons. God is doing something. And we may not understand all of God's ways, but we need to give the benefit of the doubt because this is just a beautiful picture. What do we learn about God? Well, the Lord is just. He sees the beginning from the end. He sees the end from the beginning. Outsiders become insiders. A huge theme in both Testaments. God won't miss anyone. We're so afraid. Well, if there's a good person or someone didn't have a chance, this and that, I'm wondering... Don't worry about it. God's not going to miss anyone. You know, Evan Melech was a good guy. He's in the Bible. Uh, he makes it. Ethiopian eunuch becomes a brother in Christ. 
Yeah, he, he may have been previously excluded, but he didn't become bitter and, and let that make him give up on religion, so to speak. No, he kept sacrificing, making the journeys to Jerusalem, and it really pays off because God connects him with, with a prophet. Well, really an evangelist, Philip, and he becomes a Christian. So those are my conclusions. The Lord is just. Outsiders become insiders. God won't miss anyone. Let's trust him. And I hope that these lessons from the Ethiopian eunuchs mean something to you as well. Thank you again for listening.